0: Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name's Glenn Hayes and I'm in the hot seat today to talk about incentivising and retaining your workforce. To do so, I'm delighted to be joined by Padma Tardy of Erwin Mitchell and Ian Goodwin of Accounting Specialist Mazars, just as we joined forces on our recent podcast on IR35. Padma's a senior associate in our employment team and advises you on a wide range of contentious and non-contentious issues, she has a keen interest in supporting her business clients with growth plans and helping them to maintain a stable and committed workforce. Padma is therefore often called upon to provide strategic input with company policies and procedures, reward and incentivisation programmes and training to senior management teams and line managers. Welcome, Padma.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: And we've also got Ian joining us. Ian's a Charter Tax Advisor and Employment Tax Partner of Mazar's. He advises on a host of areas across reward, employment tax and employment status issues. It's great to have you with us, Ian, also. Thanks, Glenn. Great to be here. Okay, so Padma, then, why is home and flexible working such an important issue for businesses to consider?
1: Well, Glenn, I think COVID has really changed the way in which we work and the expectations of of staff. Um, Work-life balance versus productivity is really at the forefront um, for most employers and employees. Um, And especially because most businesses have been forced, really, to invest in technology and other ways of making home working work practically, uh, which was previously, I think, a barrier for, for agility. So certainly for me, one of the big reasons why previously employers would turn down flexible work requests to work at home, and um, people are now challenging this to say, well, actually, is it possible now, given what we've seen during the pandemic? Um, and in some cases, it's it's resulted in higher engagement of staff, which can also in itself be fruitful. So it's that balance, really, and, and looking at different sectors, different requirements um, and... It's important to strike that balance because equally, employees will want different things, and um, so not everyone wants to remain working at home, others will. And um, so, it's that not having that assumption and just taking that practical approach of what your staff wants to do and what your business needs. So, it's really at the forefront of a lot of uh, agendas at the moment.
0: So, post COVID, then, Padma, what, what are you seeing in terms of flexible working requests? I
1: think. Um, recently I, I read a survey actually where it said something staggering like over 50 percent of staff would probably quit their jobs if flexible working was not on the agenda post covid and, and and things opening up and wow. um, so I, I think that that is really really the, the way we're going to see things of people requesting and demanding uh, a mix of things so there will be some people absolutely hated working at home as i said and will be keen to get back into the office there'll be other people that would never want to do their commutes again. Um, But I think the biggest thing that I'm certainly seeing or the the noise that I'm getting from employers who are speaking to staff um, is very much hybrid working where possible. And as I say, some sectors can't allow for that because of in factories and those types of things. But where it's possible, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more flexible work requests and requests to, to say we want to work in a hybrid fashion.
0: Anecdotally, I heard yesterday uh, two stories from uh, clients. One is that when they were trying to get people to go back to the workforce, uh, a number of individuals had refused to come back uh, in because they got uh, dogs during lockdown. And I heard uh, another story, which uh, did uh, raise an eyebrow with me as well, about a couple that were trying for a baby and wanted to uh, stay at home on the basis of that also. So it was um, was quite an interesting uh, conversation to have with your employer. But um, is there a process to follow then in relation to flexible working requests?
1: There is Glenn, and ultimately it's about taking a fair approach. But when I mean fair, that doesn't then mean taking a blanket approach across the whole of the workforce. So it's really about looking at the facts, the individual and the the unique set of circumstances that you have um, with that request. Most employees will tend to have a flexible working policy. So it's about looking at that as your starting point and following that process to avoid any breach of contract claims or discrimination claims. But underpinning it all or if you don't have a flexible working policy is looking at the statutory process it, which in a nutshell is uh, asking the employee to put that request in writing and unless you're able to to grant it straight away engaging in a meaningful consultation with the individual to understand if how why that request may or may not work either way um, and also having that dialogue of Could certain tweaks just address any concerns that you have to reach that compromise to still grant that request potentially? There's ultimately a three month window uh, which can be extended by agreement between both parties in which that flexible uh, request needs to be considered and the decision made. And that includes uh, the appeal process as well. Um, as I say, Glenn, it, it's about looking at the individual request and the reasons of what the concerns are of why, why it can't be granted, um, so as to not leave the business exposed to claims, uh, exits, or grievances and those types of things. But going back to your earlier point that you just made, just because people have been working at home during the lockdown isn't an automatic reason to grant a flexible working request because you might have situations where businesses have just had to do it and they've made compromises in other parts of the business during that lockdown period but equally it's you've got to look at it the fact that it has worked in some circumstances so as I say it it has pros and cons in terms of looking at that flexible working request and just making sure you take into account the bigger picture
0: well and the obvious pro is that um presumably if if you've got a happy workforce they're going to stay with you presumably so um
1: indeed as I said productivity as well Um, is increased in certain industries of not reducing commutes and those types of things that you you might otherwise have asking individuals to come to the workplace.
0: So that dialogue's important then so and Ian bringing you in on this dialogue then and how does um, working from home change employee reward? That's a good good question as this is Glenn because I think what we found is some
2: employers are changing how their employees work but leaving reward behind so ultimately reward becomes less valuable so let's say you allow your employees to work flexibly and don't care if they're at home 5 days a week or 4 days a week or 2 days a week and let them come into the office when they choose. You may provide free car parking or a staff canteen which, you know, provides a provides a valuable benefit pre-covid because people are in the office more. But now it's more it's valueless because people aren't going in the same, they're not using the car parking in the city centre, they're not using the staff canteen. So ultimately you need to look at your reward package to think, well, If we're not changing that, the employee is going to get less out of it and maybe looking then to move because they may see employees that are changing their reward package uh, to something that's more attractive in a post-COVID society where people are working more flexibly. So conversations we've been having with clients have included looking at things like the home working allowance, which can be paid at £6 per week tax and national insurance free for people who are regularly working at home looking at how you can improve people's broadband connection it's a really good point on the pets earlier glenn looking at things like pet insurance uh, whether that should be something added to a benefits platform uh, as well as other things too that organizations may also be looking at we've had conversations uh around things like food delivery um companies you know if you had a canteen before can you do something like that for your staff what should we do around virtual uh gyms or, 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 or virtual classes that we could do for, for, for people to make sure that people are, who are working at home can still be catered for the same as people who are now coming to the office more so it's really important that you move your reward package with I suppose how you are now expecting employees to work going forward because otherwise you might leave them behind and you might end up losing those workers in the end to an employer that is uh, looking more progressively at what they should offer their staff
0: Presumably, Ian, the, the regional pay gap issue that's always been a, 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 a big one, that, that sort of diminishes with, with this then. People working wherever they want, wherever in the country, sometimes even abroad, and, you know, what, what, what's the impact on that? I think what I've seen with this is the fact that
2: where you've had regional pay gaps before, so you may have had a London waiting, and you're now saying, well, people can work from home, then is there a need for a London waiting anymore? Why are people paid, say, in Newcastle, less than people in London? If there's no requirement to go to an office and their work is valued the same and they're doing exactly the same job so organizations are really going to have to grapple with that and i think from from my perspective it you know it's going to fall back on people like you know sales to potentially then advise on what the legal implications of those things are because from a reward perspective when i've helped organizations look at the gaps and cracks in their system this has been something picked up where we've seen differences in say a sales or marketing manager who's based in Leeds rather than Birmingham or Bristol. And there's different pay variations, even though they're doing exactly the same job, um, but they're getting paid less. And then there's, well, why is that? Is that a local decision? Is that a national decision? Is that a regional decision? And ultimately, and I'm looking at the regional pay gaps, the same as say the gender pay gap reporting, which has got a lot of press attention uh, to actually establish, you know, why is there a reason for this? Is there a different job being done? Or is it the case that this has always been the case because house prices are more in that area? But we know ourselves that house prices are more in Harrogate than in other parts of, say, the north. So, you know, ultimately, would you pay someone more because they choose to live in Harrogate than, say, they choose to live in Halifax?
0: Coming as a Halifax laddie, and that's it's uh, quite a compliment. Um, Padme, I know you've been advising a, a lot about working abroad, and you've seen a lot of that during the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Is there anything specifically that uh, employers need to be aware of or any pitfalls in uh, that regard?
1: Yes, so, as you say, we've been advising a lot on this, and I think the main starting point is to look at the jurisdiction in which the individual is wanting to to work in. And... Um, to make sure that both as employee and employer, you're meeting any local immigration restrictions, such as um, some regions or some jurisdictions will only allow individuals to come in as a business visitor, for example, for a certain period, or to come as a tourist, which then uh, really limits and, and restricts the amount of work that that individual can do. Uh, I'm sure ta- and Ian can talk about the tax implications that you may then be left with uh, local tax law issues and um, and also um looking at local requirements in terms of employment rights that are giving out there um, such as in some jurisdictions uh the weekend might be a friday and saturday rather than a saturday and sunday so how does that fit in with your workforce looking at gdpr restrictions regulatory issues depending on the type of industry that you're in um, and then health and safety but i think glenn it's also probably a timely reminder that with uh, Brexit, there is a deadline of the 30th of June by which people who want to apply for settled or pre settled status need to have made their applications. And as part of those applications, you need to show that you've been in the UK for a certain period of time in the year. So it's usually 180 days that you're not out of the country for more than that. Um, and given that COVID has lasted a lot longer than most of us anticipated it would be. You've got individuals that are hitting those boundaries, if not already exceeded those. So, again, just have that dialogue with your staff about what longer term plans would be, because it might hamper individuals' immigration restrictions of entering the UK again later on.
0: So, Ian, Padma uh, mentioned tax. Um, but What do employers need to be mindful of from a tax and NIC complaints perspective?
2: yeah i think there's probably probably three things to think about here there's the benefits i discussed earlier so where you are starting to provide different benefits are you taxing them correctly so one of the areas we've seen here that's caused a bit of commotion in where you're paying say you're reimbursing someone's broadband because you you, you need them to work at home you need them to have better, better broadband or you know you just want to cover their broadband costs because obviously you're asking your employee to work from home that will generally be taxable on the face of I mean, if you're not taxing it then you potentially got a liability with HMRC, which they'd come in and find when they did a review. However, if you're paying the home working allowance, which is a payment you can make for the extra costs of working from home, i.e., utilities, the extra gas, water, electricity using, you can pay six pound per week tax and NI free. So obviously, there's a subtle difference between those two. So it's organisations suppose being aware of that and making sure they can make the right decisions there and if they do you know implement any other benefits at all making sure they've thought about the tax consequences of those so we mentioned pet, pet insurance let's talk about that again that would be a taxable benefit in kind that would need to go on a p11d for staff as would if you you know you started to provide potentially other things to that, that that you you wanted employees to use at home or you provide them with new subscriptions for things to the potentially be tax impacts there as well the second thing I wanted to focus on was if you've asked your if you've allowed people to work from home, have they changed their permanent place of work contractually? So are they now home based and the office is now a temporary workplace? Or is it the case actually they're working from home more voluntarily and they go to the office when they want? Now, the revenue have you know, they, they have a little bit of legislation on this area and hundreds of pages of guidance on permanent and temporary workplaces. So it's quite hard for businesses to actually see the wood from the trees here, because it depends what inspector you get sometimes as to what the right treatment is. But if you are, say, looking at reimbursing your employee to travel to the office that they used to work at, you may find that's taxable and that issue can be made more um, more excessive. Where the individual had a company vehicle because the revenue would say the private fuel scale charge would also apply then because you've reimbursed them at least one private mile for traveling to the office. So it's really important to know whether something's a permanent or temporary workplace for that purpose. So, where you're making contractual changes, reducing office space, uh, that's likely to mean that the permanent place of work is home now because you're not allowing them to go to their local office anymore. So, if they did travel there, it would potentially be considered a temporary workplace and you could reimbursing the costs of that travel then. Um, The third thing I wanted just to mention is to pick up on what Padma said around international and remote working there, is that if people are going overseas or or returned overseas to be with family over there, say, you need to consider a few things there. So you'll need to consider there's now an income tax charge in in that country. Um, So you need to operate potentially a payroll over there. You need to consider how the Social Security interacts as well and whether you need to get a certificate in place to to cover the fact that they're still going to pay national insurance, say in the UK, or whether they would start paying it overseas. And the third thing you need to be mindful of with this is whether you've created a permanent establishment for corporation tax purposes in that country that person has returned to. And that can be quite a complex area for organisations to look at and is, is likely to be something where you've allowed people making the business decisions to return to home. So the, the main kind of business decision is you may have created a, a permanent establishment in a different country, which means that they would potentially want some corporation tax too. Uh, so there's a number of areas to look at there, but that gives a, a kind of high level view on some of the areas that interact from a contractual or tax perspective.
0: Thanks for that Ian. Uh, Padme, <coughs> Ian's mentioned changing contracts. Does there need to be a variation? And if so, how?
1: I think when it really depends on what's changing and, and how vastly different it is from what the the current contract actually then. and um, and if it's just a minor tweak here and there it might be simple enough to do a variation letter especially if there's agreement between both parties if there's quite a lot then it might be a timely point at which to to look at issuing a completely new up-to-date contract that really reflects the, the practice and um, that's going on i think in terms of uh, amending contracts you just need to be very careful and clear about as Ian says, place of work. Have you actually now got two places of work that were saying you can work parts at home and and parts of the office, or or how does that all work? Ian's mentioned things like tax and the tax issues So being very clear, especially if you're in a different jurisdiction of who picks up that additional tax and what expenses are are payable. And also, I think there needs to, whether it be in the contract, depending on what it is, or, or policies, being very clear of how and when an arrangement can be terminated if it's not working for the parties um, and also being very clear of what jurisdiction would apply again if you're in different jurisdictions. So for most employers it it might be really important to be clear that if there is a dispute we still want that to be governed by UK jurisdiction. So there's a whole host of different things that, that need to be looked at and that contract then reflecting it. The best way with all contract variations is through proper dialogue and ideally agreement between the parties. But again, what employers need to think about, especially if it's a change that they're wanting to push through or implement, such as we're reducing office space, think about what will the position be if you can't reach agreement? Are you still going to force it through? Are you going to look at other ways of compromise? Or are you going to run into a dismissal and re-engagement situation, which is a whole other topic in itself um, that we, we can't cover today? But it's those types of things that, you need a proper plan in place before you go to your staff um, and, and request for those changes, really.
0: I can also see there being potential issues about place of work redundancies as well, because if people are effectively based exactly. from home rather than an office, if, you, um, if you're if you making changes, then it might be the, there's a pooling issue there. Anyway, again, a separate topic. So I, I suppose a question for both of you, really, and Ian, perhaps you first. Um, what can employers do to change reward for the post-COVID-19 society?
2: Uh, it, it's, it's a good topic to look at here. I mean, we've mentioned some smaller areas and aspects as well. we working from home. But one aspect that you, you, you need to consider here is travel. And what I mean here in the broadest sense is what benefits did you provide connected travel, travel policy and reward strategy before? And these often relate to car. Car is one of the most emotional and key benefits an employee can receive from their employer. Uh, and one thing we've been looking at with organisations is actually you know, a lot of your workforce won't get a car allowance or car from you. But what what could be central here? We've had a lot of discussion in the UK around sustainability recently, around going green and with people now working from home. It looks as though organisations have probably uh, ensured that that they've reduced their carbon emissions in the offices because no one's there anymore. No one's using the energy costs in that respect because they're all used at home. So it's important to think about, well, how can we help the employee reduce their carbon emissions at home? And one of the central areas of discussion I've had with organisations and businesses and employees is EV charging points to charge electric vehicles and how they can be utilised to uh, transform uh, reward policies, how people travel um, and also reduce business costs and increase net pay. Um, It's important to look at these potentially as a central benefit now, rather than the car itself, because it gives individuals who wouldn't get a company car or car allowance, potentially an option then to get an electric vehicle if their employer is providing an EV charging unit. Uh, But also it gives the option then of reducing their mileage costs, so the prices of filling up or charging a vehicle if they're not having to pay for petrol or diesel anymore, uh, and also the, the chance to get a new car. So if they get a new company car uh, they, they will be paying one percent benefit in can an electric vehicle rather than say potentially 30 a diesel or petrol vehicle so there's quite a lot of uh good things that can be considered here around the the debate around what you can do post covid to look at and i think for me it sounds really odd but the ev charging unit has been quite a big area of discussion here given that the the benefits it can generate from reducing costs for business from improving environmental aspects but also in increasing net take-home pay and giving employees much more choice the other thing i just wanted to mention there is we're seeing in the uk lots of cities introducing the clean air charge or the congestion charge like we have in london businesses need to make sure that their employees uh, may be asking for reimbursement of that on expenses or if they've got old cars they may be commuting and having these extra costs thrown at them as part of just their normal commute So if they can help them potentially encourage them into new cars, that wouldn't mean they have to pay that charge. That could reduce expenses for travel costs, but also make sure that the employees aren't having to pick up these costs as part of their normal commuting costs, too.
0: What about training, Ian, then? How can that be an important part of new reward programmes?
2: For me, training, I think it's what you're doing to transform the business here. Your business may have changed during COVID. Are your employees still able to do the same job or are they doing something different? And how can you use the apprenticeship levy here to, to retrain them? The apprenticeship levy is a pot of money that a lot of organisations will have if they've got a payable over three million, they'll be able to draw down on, on their apprenticeship levy pot and pay for qualifying training costs connected to an apprenticeship. Now apprenticeships can be at all levels of an organisation. So you could find a school lever on an apprenticeship, you could find someone who's in senior management on an apprenticeship too, and that will tie people into the business, but also potentially help. Retrain them to make sure they've got the skills for the post-Covid society and economy that we need, and also that can reduce costs in different ways as well. Because if you've got employees that are under 25, so thinking your graduate or school-leaver school population, there's no employer national insurance to pay uh, if if they if they're defined as an apprentice. So that's an important thing to think about here to reduce costs. You've also got other aspects of government support, too. You've got help to grow programmes for small to medium sized businesses that are courses that you can put put your employees on to get new skills, to help move the business forward. There is some cost allocated to that for the business to pay for, but the majority is funded by the government Uh, and and there's there's other grants and schemes available as well for organisations as we come out of COVID to help support those, too. Uh, The second piece I just wanted to focus on was making sure that you've defined training. So if you're not doing an apprenticeship, if you're just doing general training in the office and getting people back into work, then is that a training cost that isn't taxable? It's imparting skill, knowledge. You know, you're doing a a session to help people come back to work from a risk or, you know, or or their normal day job perspective. Or is it something that's a bit more fun? So you are taking people out for 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 a meal. Uh, with a bit of a meeting beforehand or or to somewhere like go ape or center parks let's say that potentially would be taxable because it's not really training it's more of a jolly so organizations just need to be mindful of how they are
0: defining training i don't think center parks is a jolly in my book There's too many uh too many kids are the same age as my kids running around but uh, never mind anything to um add to that padma
1: and um, so I think just going back to the point of what Ian was talking about, and sustainability, I, I completely agree that I think it's on the agenda of a lot of employees, especially when you're looking at the next generation of employees and the millennials coming through in the workforce. Um, from speaking to employers, that's something that really holds great persuasion um, for staff when deciding whether to accept a, a role with one company or another. In terms of training, um, I think it's probably a timely reminder Um, that for contracts of employment that have been issued post-April 2020, those new contracts should now include a clause about what training is offered or expected for that individual. So if, uh, as employers, it's it's timely really to look at, do your contracts do that, to sell exactly what you offer to your staff to promote them, to to help them develop as individuals. And training for the managers to then understand what benefits and USPs you have as an organisation are really, really important. So many times I see situations where companies have fantastic benefits, um, but no one really knows about the opportunities. They're buried somewhere on the internet and people have to go away and sort of try and find them and then use them. If you have those benefits, shout about them. Stick them in your contract employment, as you should be doing anyway for uh, post-April 2020 contracts. But as I say, just training managers to regularly remind staff of what's there for them.
0: So, OK, guys, that's been really uh, interesting. So just to finish, then, can we have one final tip from each of you for incentivising or motivating staff, retaining staff? Padma, do you want to go first?
1: Of course. So um, I think the employers that tend to boast longevity and growth are those that adapt and evolve after listening to staff with through regular consultation and communication, because we've got to remember needs, ideas and views all change so it's all about being creative flexible and open-minded to suggestions rather than a mindset of this is what we've always done in this industry or this is what our competitors do or this is what's expected of us it's all about dialogue with staff really
0: great Uh, and ian
2: i think for me it's aligning your reward strategy with your home working approach and also your sustainability approach to get the most out of it you know making sustainability tangible through reward can help attract and retain your key talent can help reduce costs and can help increase net pay so that's probably a really important thing for you to talk to people who are responsible for sustainability in an organization to make sure your rewards at the forefront of your competitors and is going to help transform your business and bring the best new talent to your firm
0: great well um... Just from me then, thank you to both of you for, for both of your insights today. It's been very useful and interesting. And that's it for today. So thanks for listening to the Irwin Mitchell podcast. If you have found it interesting, then please join us for the next episode. And in the meantime, I hope everybody stays safe and well.